Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, I am excited about this message. I, I hope you are when we get finished. First of all, I want to get uh, back uh, to a little bit of the background here. Ephesus is not an insignificant town. It's not an insignificant city. It, it's the first one in the book of Revelation that's mentioned, and I, I think it would have been the largest, and uh, probably a quarter of a million people were living there. Uh, some working, some uh, traveling through, all of that kind of stuff. And in its early day, it was a center. It was a center for travel. It was a center for trade. Those kinds of things were going on in the city. Why? Because they had a great harbor. But as you know, when rivers uh, are emptying into a harbor, they usually leave something there, silt or something else. And, and so that took away that industry after decades and decades and decades. Ephesus was also a very religious town, extremely religious, with uh, an incredible number of people that were uh, religious there. They were not Jews and they were not Christians, but they were a tremendous number. They worshipped the goddess Artemis. She was a fertility goddess. Uh, One of my trips to India, I went into a, a temple uh, with Chris Williams, you know, and, and we're in there and I'm watching all of this activity that's going on in there. And, and he's explaining some of the things of what they're worshiping. And one of the things that they worship was a fertility god that was in the temple area. And so uh, you can see that, but they worship a lot of different things, including Jesus, by the way, in India. But he's just one of the many gods. But in this temple area in Ephesus, this was not a small place, okay? I wanted to check out, okay, how big this place was in regards to, let's say, Dodger Stadium. Because I knew that we had Dodger fans here. And I know all of you know that it's 380 feet long, okay, at the longest distance. I think it's 380, something like that, 330. The temple was 425 feet long. It was huge, huge. Uh, it was 225 feet wide. It was, had 60 pillars. It was 60 feet high. It was a huge building. Um, by the way, Yankee Stadium was only 425 feet, so it was bigger than uh, even Yankee Stadium. I needed to put that in there. It was a huge place, and activities were going on in worship all the time. It was a daytime activity, it was a nighttime activity, it was a, an all-the-time activity. People lived there at this temple, and they worshipped at this temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world in the ancient world. It was larger than, and actually four times larger than the Parthenon over there in Athens. So you're talking about not an insignificant building here. This was huge. The best estimate from sources outside scripture is that the followers of John the Baptist went into that city right after they got saved, okay? They got saved without the Holy Spirit, so a little bit of confusion there. They didn't realize the Holy Spirit. Why didn't they have to get the Holy Spirit? Jesus hadn't passed yet, so you can't have the Holy Spirit given. John 14, 26 says the Holy Spirit is going to teach them all things. Well, the Holy Spirit can only do that once Jesus is gone, And that's what had to happen. When Paul first arrived, he was there briefly, and then he left Aquila and Priscilla along with Apollos there 
to begin the ministry of the Word of God in this very significant city. It was a city that lots of people are going to have to go through. But here we are in Revelation chapter 2. We want to make sure we get to that message and not just the background, as I did last week. But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There are some promises, some great promises there, folks. There there is also some great warning there. There's significant warning there. You have to watch your Christian life. You need to be accountable in your Christian life. If not to yourself and to your speaking to the Lord, praying to the Lord, but you have to be accountable to other people in your Christian life. Why? Because the tree of life is the reward. Paradise is the reward. And and so you need to be looking at those kinds of things in your heart and your life. And am I still walking with the Lord? All of those kinds of questions should be asked. Last week, I mentioned that there were seven characteristics to each of you And I wanted to keep it in a sort of a cloaked thing. I didn't want to give you all of my outline at that point. But I think this will be helpful as we lay out the messages here in Revelation of basically how they are addressed, okay, to the churches. And so the first point, the first characteristic, the first element, if you want to say, you can move it to the, there we go. Look at that. Yeah, that, it's amazing. It's amazing. I, I, I can't believe it. But that's what came up. Anyway, I think it was just a fluke. I, I, I joke around with that, folks. I do do um, PowerPoint, but I do it for when I do a lecture series, not when I'm preaching. But I thought I'd lay this out for you just to be a little bit clearer. The first characteristic that we have is the address. Obviously, who are they writing to? What's going on here? And the observation that is made here is that Jesus is giving a command here. It's not a suggestion. When Jesus gives a command, you you need to be listening and you need to do it. He's giving a command because it's in the imperative. It's not a suggestion, but he's commanding John to write, take these notes down. It's like when I was in New Testament introduction, and I asked Bob Thomas, I said, you know, this book that we have here has a lot of, of footnotes in there, and, and what do we do with all those footnotes? I mean, this book is this thick, and we got to read this whole thing, and I said, what do we do with the footnotes? 
He says, son, memorize those. He meant it. He meant it. Because when that first test comes, he's asking you questions out of the footnotes. Thanks a lot, Bob. <laughs> I love the man. Anyway, the first thing he, he says here, it says to write. That's the command. Writing to an angel can be challenging, though, can it? That's if you interpret this as being an angel. It, it's fanciful to think that you could even write to an angel. Except for my grandchildren, you know, if I write to them, I know they're angels. But beyond that, I don't know of any other angels. Let's put this in a simple way. The angel here needs to be one that is identified with that city, whatever city that is. This one is Ephesus. You have Smyrna, and then you have Pergamon. You have all of the others. They have to be identified with that city. Now, could it be a guardian angel for that city? Some people have suggested that. I don't particularly agree with that, but some people have said, well, it's a guardian angel for the city. Well, where's our guardian angel for Los Angeles? Um, uh, that's a debate. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do know this. Whoever, whatever this is, it has to be identified with the city. So when you use the word angel here for the seven churches, um, so when you give a good word, okay, to the church, that angel's being commended. And if you give a bad word to that church and they're being condemned, then that angel is being condemned. I don't think you condemn angels. I don't think you commend angels. So you don't have the angels here. And so I don't think it's an actual angel. That's my bottom line understanding here. It's not an angel. It's a representative. It's a representative. Representative in the leadership of the church. Could it have been an elder of the church? Yes. Could it have been the pastor of the church? Yes. But it's a somebody who's with, within the church. So that means that those seven had to be either there in Patmos or that somebody was going to bring it to them in the, church, in the city that they were going to go to. There's no indication exactly what that is. So there's, there's separate individuals as well. It's not one going to Ephesus and then going to Smyrna and then going to Pergamum. No, it's separate individuals as well. The grammar tells us that. That's what indicates who it is. They're individuals. But they're intimate with the church. They know the church. They've lived at the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean the building, folks. Most of the churches in Ephesus at that time were probably house churches, so he had to travel around even to the various house churches, but they could be considered the church as one church nevertheless. It'd be like our Bible studies. Even though we have Bible studies throughout the whole area, they're still considered anchored. They're not considered something else. More than likely, this word angel here means messenger. It's a special messenger that represents the whole church, as I've been saying. When we look at the opening words here at Revelation, we see the progression of communication to the church. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants. So God gave it to Christ for the church. And he gave it to John. And John gave it to the angel or the messenger. So this is the progression. So that's the address. The second uh, attribute, the second element, <clears throat> is the 
uh, attribute, I should say, is the characteristic, the attribute. You see that at the end here of verse uh, 1. It says, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. There's a picture here that we're getting. picture that is given here is this attribute of Jesus he's, that's coming across is that even more powerfully than we have seen in the past, because we've seen this in the past. If you look at verse 20, of chapter 1, it says there, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, Jesus was holding those in his right hand, but here uses a different word. It uses a word that's more intense. It uses a word that's more powerfully that Christ is holding on to them. He is not letting go of them. They are his, and he's not letting go of them. And they're his in the sense that He is going to hold them to the word of God. He's going to hold them to loving other people the way he wants them to be, that he wants them to love. So he's grasping onto them. That's the the picture that we get here. And I believe this is done for a particular reason, because he wants to emphasize that Jesus is powerfully in control of all the churches. You you, uh, sit there and you say, but he's in control of the Methodist church that has a a rainbow flag on it? What do you think? Of course he is. Of course he is. He hasn't let go of them. He hasn't let go of them. Maybe there's somebody in there that's saved, but I can tell you this. They're going to be held in judgment by Jesus Christ for having that rainbow flag there and and promoting homosexuality and transgenderism or whatever else they may promote. They're going to be held in judgment for that. So yes, they're powerfully being held in his hand. He's not letting go of them. He has complete authority over them. And at the same time, he has complete grace over them. Complete grace. And he's going to do what he wants to do. And it's not just up to us and what our thinking is. He's in control. And you know what? No one can get away from him. That's why you have this holding on to them. The Lord Jesus Christ is engaged. He's engaged. He's engaged in his interest and care for his people. Jesus holds the seven stars with authority. He holds it with grace. The saints of God are in his hands. And he has comfort for them. He has care for them. And you know what? He has correction for them. You know, as a counselor, there's often when I've told people what you're doing is wrong. And what you're, how you're living is wrong. People would say, but you don't love me by saying that. And I go, wait a minute. That correction is what's necessary. You know, if your car is going over the cliff, I'm going to tell you to stop. Is that wrong? It was like this person said, well, you know, we're doing church discipline on somebody, which today we're going to do probably if they haven't repented. That, you know, that's pretty harsh to do that to somebody. And I said, you know what? Let's take it this way. Why don't we take your child? Let your child run out on Roscoe Boulevard and we just sit there. It's not loving to stop them. Of course it's loving to stop them. You keep them from getting hurt. You call that person back from falling over the cliff in their sin, and that's what's going to happen. Yes, Jesus Christ is going to correct. And I'm going to do the same thing with with what the council says. You need to be corrected. You need to be corrected. 
Additionally, the picture of Christ here among the seven churches, the, the lampstand where he's walking around, it tells us that, frankly, he knows us. He knows us intimately. He's not letting any church, any elder board, anybody get away with anything that he doesn't want them to get away with. And I would say that some of you know that intimacy of his relationship with you because you've gone through some life trials. You've had it where you have had only him to depend upon. He was the only way, and he got you through that situation. He got you over that situation. That trial was because Jesus Christ was there with you, and that's why you were able to get through it. Folks, sometimes we don't see that until we got past it. Sometimes when we're in the midst of that trial is when we run to him the the most and we hold on to him the most. And then when that trial's over, we sort of move away from him. No, you should be running to him all the time, not just when you have a trial. I know you may think this is crazy, but sometimes it's better to even ask for the trial so that he can continue to grow you. Be anxious for nothing but by everything in prayer and supplication um, with thanksgiving. In other words, you're supposed to thank the Lord for that trial. Thank the Lord for that anxiety or that fear or whatever it is. Uh, most of us don't want that. Most of us want peace all the time. Just give me peace. Can I just have some rest? No, the Lord wants you to have those things because he loves you. And he wants to grow you. That's why he does those things. So he's got this powerful um, section here of holding on to us. He watches over us. He he, he not only watches over us, but he watches for us, if you can put it that way. And now John, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 1.16, it says this, in his right hand he held the seven stars. Again, that's just a, a little bit of a holding on to where in this passage here, he's holding on to them, he's grasping them powerfully because he loves them. He cares for them. The Greek word here, it's very distinct. It's a firm grasp upon the church that he has. Look with me at John chapter 10. I'll just give you a, an idea of what Jesus is doing in the affirmation of his love and his care for you as an individual. John 10, 28. <clears throat> and um, Jesus says there, <clears throat> well, let's start in 27. In verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's if you're his sheep. Remember that. Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Wait a minute, we all die. No, no, eternal life, folks. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can do that. No false doctrine, no false teacher, no false thinking. If somebody does drift away, what, what do we say about that? We just conclude, 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were never of us, and they went out from us to show us that they were never of us. 
So when somebody walks away, that's, that's the kind of look that you can give that. That's the kind of thinking you can have. He doesn't let any go because he loves you. I don't know about you, but that sort of makes me feel good that he's not going to let go of me. No matter what trial I have or I experience or the church experiences, he's going to hold on to us. In addition to the seven stars, you see, walks among the seven golden lampstands. Beloved, Jesus walks among the churches. And I know some of you may disagree with me that he's walking among those liberal churches that are way out there. But you know what? There are human beings there. There are people there that he loves and cares for that he may even be calling to repentance. Who knows? The Lord is always appraising his church. He knows what's there, but he's always appraising them. He's evaluating the church. What? For fidelity. Are they holding to the scriptures? And that's what we're going to see here in the the examination of seven churches. Are they holding to the scriptures? Are they holding to love, kindness, humility? All of those kinds of things he's going to be evaluating. So we've had the address, we've had the attribute, shows us his care. Now we have the approbation, the third characteristic of the church. We see that in verse 2. I know your deeds, and I know your toil and perseverance, and you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. I know. Folks, this is not something that Jesus Christ just learned. This is something that's inherent. He he has this complete full knowledge that he knows. It is not something that's growing along the way, but it's something that's inherent, if we could even say it in those terms. There's beyond certain facts knowledge know that it's beyond facts knowledge down to the very thought the very uh, idea of what you wanted to do that goes into action here I know your works and I know your deeds it's not just seeing the works that are done but why the works are done why the deeds are done years and years ago I had a young man come to me and And he was questioning, why do I do what I do? He's playing music, not this young man, but a younger man. (laughs) And he's like, why do I do this? Do I do this because I I get all over the people to say, wow, really good, I really like that. Or am I doing it to worship God? Do you know what? The Lord knew that. I told him, I said, I can't know why you do that. 1 John, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3 tells me that he knows your deeds as well. And you can cast them before him as, as crowns for him or you're, it's going to be nothing. It's going to be wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to burn up. But you should do it anyway. You just need to change your attitude. So he knows those. He knows down even <clears throat> to what we're thinking in our mind. This church is known by Jesus, this Ephesian church. It knows this church does not, listen to this, does not accept evil men into their midst. In other words, we have these false teachers coming into the church. As I believe Grace Church warns when we have those false teachers, and we have had them in the past, they work hard. They toil before they affirm anyone 
into the congregation. I think that's one of the most important things that we do as elders. Is that when somebody comes and they want to become a member, we check out their testimony. And, you know, I, I've sometimes had to say to some people when I've listened to their testimony, maybe you need to go to an FOF class. If I've ever said that to you, it's because I love you. It's not because I don't want you to become a member. But I want you to know what you're getting yourself into. You don't go into it blindly and I just sign you up, you know, and that kind of thing. No, we need to make sure that they are actually members, not of this church, but of his church. Are they truly believers? And so that's why I take my time with that, and that's why I make sure that that testimony is a, a real testimony as far as I can tell. But what do they do here? They, they are making sure they work hard before they affirm anyone into the congregation especially that they would know some of the doctrine. Do you need to know everything? No. Now, folks, just so we don't become picky, I had a lady years ago in Faith Builders tell me I believe everything you do but one thing. I said, what is that? And she told me, and I said, that's a secondary thing. Don't worry about it. However, you may not teach that. Three years later, she comes up to me and she says, well, I believe what you do now. (laughs) That's fine. What do I believe? You know, so she told me, and she, oh, yeah, that's right. Now, just remember, secondary things, I'm, you know, that, that's, that has, has nothing to do with uh, your walk with the Lord. But just understand this. We're going to get to why we're, I'm going through all of this. Look at 1 John with me, chapter 4. 1 John 4. And this is why we have to be careful, diligent, And it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now is it is already in the world. Folks, there's not one antichrist in the world. There are multiple antichrists in the world. Multiple people that want to take the church down. They're attacking the church from all different directions. That's why you are careful about who you let into your congregation. That's what's most important. They need to know the doctrine. They need to believe the doctrine. And then they're going to sign the doctrinal sheet that they believe it. And if they don't, because of their lifestyle, then they're going to be put out of the church. Or because of their teaching, they're going to be put out of the church. Titus 3.10. They, they're put out because they are um, trying to divide the church with their teaching. So all of this is very important because this is what's going on at Ephesus. This is what's going on at Ephesus. We haven't gotten there yet, but that's what they're going to be dealing with. This church that Paul is writing, uh, I'm sorry, this church that Paul established, we see was established in Acts 18 through 20, somewhere in that area. There's two generations of believers there. I remember when I first became a Christian here, I mean, I was on fire. But I remember seeing a film about the second and the third generation of believers in the family and how they continue to drop off and drop off and not be as fervent. And that's what happens sometimes. 
You look at history and where Christianity did come to America and the great establishments they had in Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Those places, I don't even know if they believe in God anymore. They believe in all kinds of things, but I don't know if they believe in God. But then you go across the country. And then I was here at the establishment of the Master's Seminary. I came in 1982, so I was here before I came here. And the questions, how is this going to remain faithful? How is this going to remain faithful? By the way, you're into the third generation of teachers at the Master's Seminary. It's still faithful. They're holding to the doctrine. And that's what's important. That's what this church began to to slough off on. Not so much the doctrine. We're going to get there and point that out to you. But Paul said this in Acts 20, 29. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's what happens in multiple churches. They begin to divide. They begin to tear apart. That's what happens when you have somebody come in and teaching false doctrine. Ephesus was actually and eventually attacked. That's what happened. And it was coming from within the body. And and the way I look at it and the way I see it here, even in the grammar, it happened within the leadership. It happens within leadership. Their doctrine was perfect, but there's something that's not right. We still haven't touched on it, but we're going to get there. Even though this church did well at guarding itself, and it did, from evil men, it still had a lack there. There was something still missing. They still fell short of what the Lord would have them do. Apparently, the heretics got a hearing in the church. And when they listened to him, they threw them out, but they still got a hearing. How do you even let a heretic have a hearing? Jesus knew the Ephesians labored on his behalf for the sake of the gospel. And he commends them for it. We see that there in 2.3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary it's over, over, and over. And i got to tell you, folks, when you're doing something like this, it's lots of work. Lots of work. Lots of hours. When the false apostles came, they withstood the heresy. They endured with great perseverance. They endured the test of these false apostles. More than likely, um, John, or Jesus, is speaking to the Nicolaitans here. More than likely. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? You know what? There's all manner of things, and I'm not going to try to guess any of those. They're false teachers, period. That's all we need to know. The Ephesians, in a sense, this church never gave up. They gave gospel priority the highest recognition. They gave doctrine the highest recognition. It was much needed. They were fabulous in their doctrine. So where is the weakness? Where is the weakness in this church? We see that in the next element here, the next characteristic, in the admonition. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. You remember the day you got saved? What joy, what peace that you felt in your heart, what grace you felt in your heart 
because of what God did. You knew how much of a sinner you were. Do you still have that same joy? Jesus is catching them. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That but there, just, it's just resounding. It's like, it's like the but in, uh, in Ephesians 2. But the tone, the direction of the kind words that Jesus was just speaking now turns into a rebuke. I have this against you. I have this against you. This, that's a, a, a fabulous picture of divine displeasure. I have this against you. So what is it? What is it that Jesus had against this long-standing, well-known church? They had lost their first love. I ask this question. Could Grace Church ever lose its first love? Don't be so proud to think that that would never happen here. Don't be so proud to think that that would never happen here. I remember being in the room across the way here and having a banquet for the TMS students and we had a, 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 somebody come in to be our speaker and, and he says, and some of you are going to fall morally. And I sat there proudly saying, that would never happen. He doesn't know these guys. We meet early for prayer and all of this kind of stuff. Folks, it happened. It's happened. Don't ever be so proud that it can't happen here. That's when it is going to happen. Don't lose that first love. You cherish him all the time in your life. I have this against you. The flock that is guarded here by the elders will be able to take care of the doctrine. What about the other things? You see, the people in Ephesus persevered in the work of ministry, yes, but they still lost their first love. And, and I, I, I must tell you, I ask myself the question, have we slipped into the ho-hum of ministry sometimes? And, and not really seeing that what this is about. There are lives, there are people that need to get saved. There's all kinds of things that need to happen. Have we taken a vacation from all the good that we used to do and and now we're not doing it any longer? There's always a time to examine ourselves, folks. That's what uh, David does in Psalm 139. Uh, Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. We should always be doing those kinds of things. The belief that you are saved and, go, and, and going to heaven are great thoughts. But I, I'm, I'm going to say something here, but it's not time to sit back. It's not time, time to, to think about your, uh, sitting on your laurels and maybe even having a fresca. It, it's not time for that, folks. Okay? We should constantly... We should forever be praying to God that he would give us the joy of our salvation. I mean, being excited about it. I, I, be excited about it every single day. Making sure others hear how excited you are about what Jesus Christ has done in your life. That's what needs to happen. That we rejoice in his name and his people. 
The love for Jesus is seen in, in how we witness. And it's not just with our mouth, folks. It's how we treat people. It's how we respect people. It's how we love people. That's the first love they missed out on. They, they forgot about loving others as God has already loved us by saving us. Our lives need to witness to the world of God's redemption. We are changed people. There's nobody bigger or smaller or whatever. It's not John MacArthur's kingdom. I want you to know that. And I'll say that right in front of him. It's not his kingdom. It's God's kingdom. Whoever's just got saved, it's he's in the kingdom. Part of it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And this is a warning I think we, we need to take. Please hear this the right way as well. Matthew 24. Start in verse 9. I, this morning I was reading it again and, and I said, no, I need to start a little earlier. <laughs> so verse 9, it says, this, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. I don't know that anybody hates me yet. Well, maybe they do. Because of his name. When I was in business, I I witnessed all the time. I I had homosexual designers that I would talk to about Jesus Christ, and and, and they they were shocked that I would do that. But they were my friends, and I included them in on my life. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Do you have any fear of that happening in your family or or maybe in your church? Many false prophets will arise and, and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Folks, we we live in a society where good has been changed to bad, and bad has been changed to good. I don't know if you've noticed it. I'm almost to the point where I don't want to listen to the news, and my wife will laugh, but I, I just, it just, every single day, you just hear another thing. It's upside down, but I'm not crawling into my cubbyhole. I'm not just going to hunker down and, 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 you know, run away from these things. Got to face them, folks. The first love that Ephesus lost was the original passionate love for their salvation that they wanted to tell others about. The first love that, that Ephesus lost was love for each other. You see, the, the love for each other is intricately woven into the love for Jesus Christ. Yeah, I can say I love Jesus and maybe I get all my doctrine right. But I've got to love others. I've got to love others. I've got to care about them. The first generation of believers in Ephesus was on fire. They told everybody about Christ. When you come to the second and the third generation of believers the fire begins to die out and the caretakers of faith begin to take over. I call them the bureaucrats. They begin to take over. 
this is not a, a bad thing that they take over, but the energy is going out of managing our direction outward. They begin to look inward. That's what's beginning to happen. Listen to what Paul has to say in his letter to the Ephesians. This is, okay, the last verse in all of Ephesians. And he says this, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Are we loving others as we love Christ? Are we loving others? Robert Thomas, I've already mentioned him once, he said this, quote, love is not reciprocation. Did you hear that? Love is not reciprocation. It takes the initiative, is sacrificial in nature, and meets the needs of its object. That's what love is. In other words, I reach out to my brother, my sister, if I see that they have a need, and I help them. I love them. What is hinted at here is that there was something missing from the love within the congregation. And I wasn't there, folks. And I'm making this from 2,000 years away. So it could be off somewhat, but I think that that is getting to a little bit of what's going on here. Their doctrine was fine. Jesus says that here in the message. But their love was beginning to wane. It was beginning to go away. What had become more important in the second and third generation was getting it right. I got the doctrine right. And then I've got to make sure you get it right because I'm going to force it into your brain. Demanding that they were right. That fervent love for Christ was replaced by a fervent love for being right. One loves Christ and people while the other loves being right. Don't love being right, folks. Do you know what? Half of the arguments in a marriage, no, I'm sorry. I'll do just statistically more correct. 90% of the arguments in a family and a husband-wife relationship is because they want to be right, not because they are. Not because they are. Love the other person. Care for the other person. Be humble before the other person. That's what needs to happen. The next characteristic, the admonishment. The fifth characteristic is found in verse 5. It says, therefore, remember where you have fallen. Remember where you have fallen. And repent and do the deed you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place until you repent. That is a warning. That is a warning. Therefore, remember, not just bring to mind the things of the past, but do something about it. Repent and change. What a tragic warning. Remember from where you have fallen. This must be shocking. This must be shocking for those who now find themselves adrift in a, in a sea of mediocrity that's going on in the church. Instead of serving the Lord, the risen Savior, they're serving self now. The church has fallen, is what it says here. It's in the perfect tense, which means it can, it, it, that's what's happening now and is continuing to happen. 
it's still fallen. Through the use of imperatives here, Jesus is now commanding repentance. In this situation, you can only do one thing. Guess what? Repent. Repent. Take ownership of your sin, of not loving the other person, of not caring about the other person. Repentance is never the only thing to do, though. When I, when I do counseling, I don't tell the folks that I'm counseling, you need to repent of your sin. No. What are you going to do now to change it? That's what I do with my kids when they're growing up. What are you going to do differently now? You now do the things that you once did for these people in Ephesus. Your first works, your first deeds, you need to go back to them. Now, if you've taken the counseling class with me, and many of you have, that Greek word repent, metanoia, uh, means to change your mind. You've now gotten into this rut, which, by the way, a rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. Uh, you've gotten into this rut, now change your mind and start loving these other people. 2.5, it says, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Jesus is saying, do the deeds that you were first characterized by. Remember when you first got saved? I, I told everybody that was in my eyesight about Christ and what he did. I wanted everyone to know it. And yeah, I went overboard. I did. I, I'll be honest with you. My mother-in-law said, well, he does want to talk about Jesus. Yeah, she complained. And I understand that. And I needed to be a little bit more thoughtful. Jesus says here that if you do not do the deeds that you did at first, he is coming. And that's not the second coming, folks. That's coming because he's now going to bring retribution. He's going to spank you. He's going to bring a spanking. The church is beginning to fade away. And, and folks, I've used the uh, example of the denominations the large, the used to be large denominations. Yeah, that's the picture. They begin to fade away. They have no impact. Please note the consequence. Removal of the light stand. Wet with the lampstand. What does that mean? The light is going out. It's becoming dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And Jesus says you need to repent. Otherwise, your lampstand will be removed. Verse 6, <clears throat> yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Not, not much is known about the Nicolaitans, and we're not going to get into that, but I do know, I, I believe they were in, in this idolatrous culture, they would probably be saying it's no big deal. Go, go ahead and go take, partake with the idolatrous culture. That's probably what it is. Nicolaitans, that's the, the false gospel. He commends them here. And, and, and that's good that at the end, it's just not just being a spanking, but it's a, it's a commending of these folks. What was he commending them to? They're doing well because they have the exegesis down correctly about faithfulness to the word, but where is their love? Here's the appeal. This is the sixth element of the letter. We find that in Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. 
Do you know, I, I look at that passage there, that section there, and I say, he who has an ear. Do you know how many people put their hands over their ears, over their eyes, over their mouth? They don't want to hear. I have those three little figures on my desk in my office. And sometimes I say to the counselor, which one are you? Over the ears, over the eyes, because they just don't want to have somebody poking around in their heart. Uh, Isaiah, you don't need to turn there, but Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. I want to read this. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Got to hear this. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. There, I'm sorry, starting in verse 9. Verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. See, folks, the more that you shut your ears off to the things of God, the more that the sound goes lower of God speaking to you in the sense of the word. That's what begins to happen. People say to me, you know, how can you have these people out here on the street? It must be mental illness. No, it's not mental illness, folks. God gives them grace. Not the, not the same grace that we've received in, as, in salvation, but it gives them grace and they could do things, but they, they keep turning him off and they don't pursue him until he lets them go do what they want to do. He, God gave them over, Romans 1. God gave them over. You can jot down uh, Jeremiah 5.21 and Mark 4.9 because we don't have time to look at those right now. You see, folks, we're commanded to listen. Listen to the word. And that's what is going to be told to all the churches, not just even the, the bad churches or the mediocre churches. We only need one ear. You have bad hearing, use the one that has good hearing, okay? But listen. Listen. Now the last uh, characteristic, the last element is the affirmation. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Where have you heard that before? Wow. Genesis. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. That's when it was perfect and peaceful, folks. Sin entered in chapter 3. The garden, the, the, the tree of life was then guarded by an angel to keep anybody from taking of it. And now look at what, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That's what's going to be granted to them we're all going to be able to partake if we're believers. To overcome is to believe God's promises, to believe God's word. To overcome is to trust the Lord in all things. To overcome is to persevere in the things of God. To overcome is to be redeemed. To overcome is something that is continually happening. It's active, gone going in your life. This takes the reader all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, and we don't have time to go back there. But this promised tree of life offers healing. You see that in Genesis 2.9. Therefore, the end, 
here. The end of the curse is being proclaimed here. And we go back to that new life that we were supposed to have. But sin ruined it. The picture of intimate presence with God is here. The tree of life is where God walked with Adam and Eve. He was there with them. We will be with Him. That's, that's the reward. That is the affirmation of listening, of hearing Him. The fruit at the beginning of the Bible allows one to live forever. The fruit of your life today, because of what Christ has done, allows you to live. And look where you live, in the paradise of God. Remember the man, the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Is that not a wonderful, wonderful promise? That's the affirmation, living with him in paradise Folks, the picture here is of complete tranquility and joy. Paradise in the the Garden of Eden. As you've heard here today, Church of Ephesus is like many churches today. I I could pick out names, but I don't want to put any stigma on anybody. There's a growing problem of heresy within the church. Frankly, there are a lot of people who don't even know how to stop heresy because they don't know the Word of God. I've had some of my friends gone out and gone into churches where the elders in the church don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. And they, they call me up and they say, but Bill, what do I do? I said, well, obviously it sounds like you need to start training some new leadership. You start training and training and training and training. Ephesus gives us a great example of endurance, though, of perseverance, and frankly, grace of God. He gives them the chance to start listening so that they can overcome. I asked the question, could this happen at Grace Community Church? It sure can, folks. It sure can. That's why even this past Friday when we had our elders retreat, so to speak, that's what we looked at. What is God teaching us and what do we need to know about the future to be able to keep this a strong church? We've got to raise up good leadership. Got to raise up faithful leadership. Because you know what? Some of those guys are getting old. (laughs) I know I wanted to give you a chance to uh, think about your heart before the Lord. And I don't see anybody at the doors yet. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and then I'll close in prayer. We're going to go down to have communion We go down to hear a message, and I think it's a good one, of course. I always think they're good. But I want you to examine your heart and where you are with the Lord. How is your love for your brother, for your sister, maybe even for your spouse? How is your love for your parents, your children, your cousins, whatever it is, blood people, people that don't know the Lord, how do you express that love? And examine your heart to see whether you're ready to take communion today. Father God, as we are preparing our hearts for 
sitting and listening to another message, yes. We pray that we would take that message in, yes. We pray, Lord God, that our love for those even in our midst today would grow. Those who live in our neighborhood would grow. And that, Lord God, we would be able to express to people the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That that first love, that first day that we were saved, we would remember it and, and want to explain that to people and how excited we were. Lord God, keep that excitement in our heart that that first love we had for you would be warm, would be, would be even intense. Lord God, we pray that we continue to grow to be the people of God that you want us to be. And we pray this in your magnificent name. Amen.